So what is in a name? You may have Googled journey in your attempt to find out about us and run into a bunch of other journey churches. Anybody do that? Both of you? Good. Um, I had somebody call who did that Google and said, are you like a big movement? Is there like a journey denomination? No, there isn't. And I would just argue there's a lot fewer churches named Journey than there are churches named First Baptist. <laughs> when my wife and I were living in New Jersey, I was in a, we were in an inner city section and this old church bus pulled up and the name of the church was just boldly hand-painted on the side of the old bus. Rapture Preparation Center. No question where they stood on a few issues. Well, for us, the, what we mean by the journey, and that's what I'm going to be explaining to you today. It's actually the first of a, a five-part study we're going to do, talking about the spiritual journey that Christ calls us to. I just want you to sit back and ask this question to yourself. If you had to talk to somebody right now and share briefly what you believe the gospel message is that Jesus taught, what would you say? It, it seems simple. And I think for many of us, how we were taught to articulate the gospel, now not the facts of the gospel, that salvation is a work of God by grace through faith. It's not of us. That forgiveness is possible only through the work of Christ. You know, I, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about how we sell it, how we think about it, what it turns into when we share it with people. And when we do that, and then we repeat it, and we teach each other to repeat it, without realizing we subtly migrate away from the gospel that Jesus presented. It's important that we capture that so that when we come to be a gospel community, we, we honor not only the facts of the gospel, the story of the gospel, but the context of it, what it's supposed to produce in our life. We're going to be in the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. So I'd encourage you to turn there with me if you have a Bible today. I just want you to, to see the very first thing we see Jesus saying when he comes and begins his ministry. Verse 17, from that time on, this is after his t baptism, after his days in the wilderness being tempted, he finally comes and begins to preach. And this is what his preaching is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark, in his telling of this, calls that the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Jesus taught the good news. And in fact, Mark's telling of it was, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Later on, after Jesus gathers his uh, disciples and begins to minister, we see Luke telling us that Jesus went about the cities and villages, and what was he proclaiming? He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He later sends out his followers in twos to minister and proclaim his message to the world. And what does he tell them to proclaim? Kingdom of God. After Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the grave, he had those days with his followers. This was the strategic season where he was preparing them to go and deliver the message of truth. What does Scripture record Jesus taught during those 40 days before he ascended into heaven? 
<laughs> so, if we were to say in a brief statement what Jesus' gospel was about, what would we say it was about? The kingdom of God. You see, somewhere along the line, we turn the gospel into this. What is the minimum stuff I need to know and do in order to get into heaven when I die? That's what we turn the gospel into. It's all about getting things right and passing the test so that when our life's over, we get into heaven. There's an illustration of this that I like from a a great theological treatise known as Monty Python's Quest for the Holy Grail. There's a, there's a section where King Arthur and his men uh, towards the end of the movie come to this great chasm and a single rickety bridge to get across. And then there was the bridge keeper. Maybe you know the scene. I see, I see a lot of fellow theologians uh, here with me nodding uh, at what I'm talking about. And the gatekeeper says, I'm going to ask you three questions. And if you answer them right, you get to cross the bridge. If not, you're cast into the abyss. So the first person comes up, and of course he's a little nervous, and the questions are, what's your name? What's your quest? I have a quest for the Holy Grail. Answered his name. And what's your favorite color? Blue. Correct. He went through. So the second guy now, he's, he's pretty cocky now. What's your name? Said his name. What's your quest? I searched for the Grail. And then his question was, what's the capital of Assyria? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Captain the Abyss. So now the third guy is really nervous. The bridge keeper says, what's your name? He says his name. What's your quest? I quest for the grail. What's your favorite color? And he's so nervous, he says, red. No, blue. Ah! He's cast into the abyss. King Arthur comes up, and the bridge keeper says, what's your name? I am Arthur of the Brits. What's your quest? I search for the holy grail. And then he pulls out this question. It's sort of a running gag throughout the whole movie. And the question is, what is the airspeed velocity of a coconut-laden sparrow? So King Arthur goes, well, that depends. Are we talking about a European or an African sparrow? The gatekeeper says, I don't know. (laughs) The gatekeeper is cast down into the abyss. Yeah, I think that what we have done is turn the idea of the gospel into that. In fact, we evangelize often based on that. You know, one of the ways we've been taught to evangelize, and it can be a very legitimate way to prompt a conversation with somebody, as long as it doesn't stay there, is you're dead, you're standing before the gates of heaven. Jesus said, why should I let you in? I'm King Arthur. I quest for the Holy Grail. Red, you know. That's a good prompter, but that's all that is. It's a prompter because the gospel is much more than that. Let me ask you a question. Where... In the whole of the Gospels, did Jesus ever sit down with his disciples and say, listen, I'm going to give you the minimum knowledge you need to know to get into heaven? Did he ever do that? No. What was Jesus' good news? It was this. The kingdom of God is now available to normal people. The kingdom of God, life with God with his presence and his power constant in our life, has been made available by the coming of the Son of God. Jesus did not call us to know the right answer for the final test at heaven's gates. His focus was not just about the hereafter, but also about the here and now. Jesus didn't invite us to join a new church. He didn't invite us to join a new religion that would eventually get his name put on the top of it. How did Jesus pull people into the kingdom? 
What was his strategy? Not the core of the gospel that made that transition into the kingdom possible. How did Jesus pull people into the kingdom? He invited them into a journey. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And this is Jesus' words. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the only passage we're going to look at today. It seems simple enough. You've heard the sermon preached on many times, the focus typically on fishers of men. Jesus calling us to reach people with the love of Christ. I want you to understand that at this point, this is not a commissioning to go. That's later on. That's three and a half years from now when he says go and make disciples. This is a call to come. And so the wording here actually speaks volumes. So we're going to break up this brief sentence into four items. Now, for those of you that have been with me when I preached in the past, right away you know I've grown because I now have four items instead of my normal three. The very first very simple word, and what I want to do is go through this and ask you, in the same way that we have turned the gospel into this sales pitch, four statements, a special prayer, a signature on the line, and said, that's it, you got that, you're good, good to go. Good to go to heaven. How have we lost sight of seeing God's invitation through the gospel into life in his kingdom? And how does his invitation to these four brothers, two sets of brothers, speak to us today? So because of that, when we hear the word come, let's pay very careful attention to it. Here's what I think. I think we like the idea that we've turned the gospel into us inviting Jesus to come. I remember growing up being taught that I'm going to ask Jesus to come into my heart. Of course, as I got older, I realized that was um, symbolic. You know, it was a metaphor to bring Jesus into my life. And of course, we, we do want Christ's presence in our life. But it's very important for you to understand that it's not about us asking Jesus to come into our small life. I've got news for you. He doesn't fit. It's about Jesus calling us into his life. And that is unlimited territory. What a difference. What a difference for those of us that thought that we came to Jesus thinking, okay, I've got this life, I've got these needs, I've got these problems, I've got these ideas. What do I need? What's, what's missing in here? Jesus, Jesus is missing. Jesus, come into all this. The problem is we're framing the boundaries by thinking that it's our life we want Jesus to fix. Jesus wants us to enter into his life and be transformed by that experience. That is so different. One is rooted in selfism. One understands more carefully Jesus' words that we need to deny self, take up our cross, 
and follow him. Put the old life away. That's what baptism is about. Uh, just for those of you that are curious, we are going to practice believer's baptism by immersion. Because to us, in Scripture, that is what was practiced. It, it was actually already happening in Israel during that day. It was called a mikvah. And what would happen is, if a young man was going to devote his life to a rabbi, the ceremony was a mikvah. He would enter into the Jordan River, ideally, if not there, some other body of water. And he would, the Greek word is baptizo, which means to, literally, to immerse. That's what the word baptize means. He would go into the water and come out. And the reason why he would do that is because he was symbolically birthing himself Just like we're born of water in our first birth, we're all aware of that, right? What the first thing that happens before the baby's born, the water breaks. I know this because, uh, you know, my wife and I did go through natural childbirth, which means that the wife is with you throughout the entire delivery. I found that very comforting with all that I was going through. See, I I love a new church. I can tell all my old jokes. I love that. So, in in essence, baptism is the simulation of birth into a new way of life. Jesus said to his followers, he made the rabbinic call. They understood what he meant when he used the words of a rabbi when he said, take my yoke upon you. That's what you did. That's the word they used, the phrase, when you went in to study a rabbi. You took his yoke, his teaching, his authority on you. Jesus is inviting people to let him be their rabbi, be the one that guides and shapes their life. And so then when he said, go and baptize people in my name, he's saying, have people go through a process of recognizing they're leaving one life behind and coming into a new life. And that's in me. That's what Jesus means when he says, come. There's a leaving and a following. And that's the second term. Follow me. Not just enough to come and arrive. Too many people are devoted to trying to figure out their faith while they're in the search mode. But then once they get it figured out and they decide Jesus is the way and they're going to give their lives to that, they can fall into this trap of thinking their journey's done. The journey was the searching. They found job over. But in fact, the journey has really just begun. Jesus wants us to follow him. In the Greek language, there are two words that are translated as the single word follow. And they literally mean follow behind. It's an interesting posture. We like the idea of Jesus and me being buddies and buddies, you know. And Jesus does come alongside us. That's the glory of being called his brothers and, and God our Abba Father. But in terms of the life God calls us to, Jesus leads. We don't. Right? So when we come to him, we don't say, okay, Jesus, here's my issues, here's my needs, here's my goals. What are you going to do about it? And then when our goals and our needs don't work out, we turn to Jesus and go, what did you do wrong? Jesus said, no, I invited you into my life. I love the fact that we're giving you, it's obviously not a very expensive gift, but I love that metal, little metal bookmark because it reminds us of God's words. And I I hear them in Jesus' call to his followers to follow him. When God says, I know the plans I have for you. Not plans to hurt you, but to prosper you. Plans for hope in the future. Those are the plans I want. 
I, I have the things that I think will meet my needs, but God knows. And it's the needs that matter, not the wish list. God says, follow me. He's in charge. You know, we have a very hard time with that. So just quickly here, before we move on to the final two, let's kind of wrap up this first part. Come, follow me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his life, right? Now, you might be thinking, okay, Tom, you said we don't invite Jesus into our life. Jesus invites us into his. But I distinctly remember a verse in the Bible where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens up to me, I'll come in and sup with him and he and me. Surely that's calling Jesus to come into our life. Well, in one sense it is, but you have to remember, Jesus is the one engaging. He's calling on us and asking us to respond. But even more importantly, that passage is from the book of Revelation. And Jesus is speaking to a church, not to people. He's speaking to the church at Laodicea. And the problem is, this church has decided they're fine because their programs, their ministries, their charities, and their own needs are all met, so they think everything's fine. And Jesus has to say to them, you don't even know how blind and poor and naked you are because you've left me out of the experience. You're not a Jesus church, you're a me church. In fact, I recently ran across a television commercial for that church. I'd like to show it to you right now. I I think you'll find it quite interesting. I think there's a few of these churches Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys, right? Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right. You join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church, where it's all about you. Churches like that are very successful uh, on a human level. And we can build pretty strong organizations feeling like we need nothing. Because that's what the church at Laodicea said. And Jesus said, where am I in all this? You've got it wrong. Come, follow me. That's the journey. And where does the journey take us? Where does it take us? Well, that's the, the next phrase. What will happen if we drop our nets and follow Jesus. Instead of inviting him into our very small life, following him into his gigantic, limitless life. What what will happen? Well, he says, okay, if you come and follow me, next phrase, I will make you. I will make you. The, The Greek word there is poieo. 
Some of the descriptives that come with that phrase have to do with a commitment and the act of creation. So what Jesus is saying to them is, I'm asking you to come and follow me. I'm asking you to leave behind your ideas of life, your ideas of what will meet your needs. I'm asking you to get behind me and let me take you into a different life, a life that's about the kingdom of God, life in God, his presence, his power. And if you do that, I'm making a commitment to you. That's that word. I am committed. You know that, that part where, where Paul says, he who began a good work it will be faithful to bring it to completion in you? To me, that's a great expansion of Jesus' promise to make us. And what he's saying is, I'm committed to do a work of creation in you. What a powerful thought that the one who was the word who in the beginning was with God and was God and without whom nothing has been made that was made, who became flesh and dwelt among us, called out to us through his human form, come to me and let me be the creator for you. Let me bring change in your life. I will make you. Pretty good deal. <laughs> what will he make us? Well, there's an interesting phrase he uses here. Come, follow behind me, and I will create you. I will make you fishers of men. Now, how many of you like were raised in Sunday school? And now, just keep your hand up and turn around. See, that's about Massachusetts right there. That's about Massachusetts in terms of people that grew up in, in church. So it's a very interesting place to be, to be talking about Christ. And I love being here because everything's kind of fresh and relevant. And sometimes the things we hear as kids, they're great for us as kids, but they stifle us as adults. You know, that old song, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men. But, you know, we kind of picture ourselves, oh, we're all going to be little soldiers, little evangelists, fishing for men. Well, okay, all right. But what did it mean to these men? What were they? Fisher men. What is Christ saying to them? He's saying, I'm going to do a complete work of creation in you. But you're still going to be you. I'm going to take everything about you that is glorious, that I gifted you to be, that you're using now, that's just naturally coming out in your life, and all that was put in you for this moment when I could take it and use it in a way that is powerful and reproductive. Do you understand that? Luke was a physician. Maybe Jesus would have said, follow me and I'll make you a healer of men's souls. Maybe Levite, the tax collector, he would have said, follow me and I'll help you hold people into moral account. No, that doesn't sound too much like Jesus. But I think you're getting my idea here. What Jesus is doing is coming alongside them and saying, this is who you are. Now I can make that person who you are be completely who God meant you to be fully. That's what he gets at when he says in John 10, 10, I came, not that just you might have life, but you might have it to the full. I love Paul's description of that when he talks about the life in Jesus as being life 
that is truly life. Isn't that a powerful thought? You know, we're going through life. We're doing our best. We're having our joys. We're having our trials. Sometimes uh, you win. Sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get rained out. You know, that's life. We're going along, and we think that's it. Jesus comes and says, you know, if you follow me, you're going to find out that this isn't it. I'm going to blow the roof off, and it's going to be you, but the way I created and intended you to be. Isn't that an incredible thought? That is Jesus' call to people as his inviting moment to come into the kingdom. What do we do? We ask people to give us the minimum facts they need to get into heaven. And if they can answer those questions, then they can join our club. That's what we do. In other words, we start with the idea of you need to believe right. And if you believe right, then we'll, we'll let you be a part of us. What we're going to learn over the next five weeks is that these four men, along with many, many other men and women who came to follow Jesus responded first by entering into this journey of discovery and it was during that journey that the truth came out and they fell in love with Jesus and fell in step with Jesus and fell in worship of Jesus. But you don't get there by having to argue the points of it first. Christ's idea wasn't believe and then belong. Christ's idea was belong and then believe. See, What I want you to do is just to see how they respond. It's verse 20. At once they left their nets and followed him. It repeats it when it talks about uh, James and John. It says, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. In other words, what Jesus offered them was so attractive that no second thoughts, no struggling, no skepticism, no need to think it through and make plans. They just said, yeah, I can do that. Why? Because Jesus wasn't at the beginning saying, here's what you need to believe, here's what you need to understand, here's how you need to approach this, here's the things you can do, here's the things you can't do. Please sign. Jesus said, just come. Take the first step. Start on the journey of discovery. And in the process, be changed and transformed by the gospel. That's who we want the journey to be. We want the journey to be a place where people at all phases of that period of discovery come and are welcome to take the next step. There's no test you have to pass to come here except that you're a human being that wants to encounter God through his son Jesus and figure that out. Many of us have been on that journey a long time. We figured a lot of it out. We're still figuring it out. I've been a Christian for... 38 years, something like that. If you count my deathbed conversion at the age of four when I thought that the monsters were going to come out and get me, then I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've been a professional Christian for 30, which means I've made a living at it. And I'm only now learning some things. My dear mentor, Bob Frederick, who I haven't been able to see now in two months because he had a serious illness and he's paralyzed. And the family's asked that none of us, his boys, his pastor boys that he's mentored for a few years. They've asked us not to go. I miss Bob. But at 84, Bob was still growing, still discovering, still teaching me things about the kingdom of God. That's the journey. We start by simply hearing the words of Jesus saying, come, follow me. And in that journey, I'm going to change you.
Maybe just sit for a moment quietly and wherever you are in your journey, say, boy, I, I, I sense a calling of God to a next step. And just in your hearts, open yourself up to that. Hear God saying, come into my life, my world, and follow me.